You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a bounce back for tech stocks. The Nasdaq 100 seeing a bump a day after a sell-off that erased trillions. But will it all be undone with new inflation numbers come Wednesday? We'll discuss. Plus, Elon Musk says banning former President Trump on Twitter was, quote, flat-out stupid. And but he'll reverse it. And Tony Fidel's unorthodox advice to founders in these times of market turmoil. The so-called father of the iPod and co-founder of Nest talks about the most and least exciting inventions coming out of Silicon Valley today. That's later this hour. I want to dive into this ongoing volatility, especially in the tech sector, where we've seen a big sell-off since the start of the year. I'm joined now by Ellen Hazen. She's the chief market strategist at Putnam Investment. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. So, look, what do you make of this sell-off, especially when it comes to tech? Have we hit bottom, or is there more to come? There's probably more to come. It makes sense that tech stocks have pulled back so far because we saw tech stocks do so well in the last three years, particularly with the pull forward that we saw due to COVID of all the stay-at-home names. But that was also really exacerbated by the easy money policies that the Federal Reserve was pursuing. And as the Fed begins to pull back, a lot of tech is dominated, as you know and as your viewers know, by those companies that have very little cash flow now. And the market has been betting on cash flows pretty far out into the future. We have looked at the tech sector as bifurcated between those companies that have dominant market positions, a strong runway for growth and cash flow now, and those that were really hopes and dreams. 
And I think that latter group may not come back for a long time, if at all. But the former group has come in quite a bit as well, and we think those are where the opportunities are. So inflation numbers coming out in 24 hours. How is that going to affect this broader story? Certainly, if inflation remains high, and we think it will probably peak sometime in the second quarter, but if we see a high inflation print tomorrow, that's very bad for those long-duration tech stocks because that will give the Federal Reserve license to raise rates even faster. Real rates are going to continue to increase, and that hurts those cash flows that you're discounting for a lot of the far-out growth names. So when you say there's more to come, just how much more? How low can we go? Uh, it depends on the company, of course. Uh, but we wouldn't be surprised to see another 5-10% down in a lot of the larger names and some of the smaller names. It's really hard to say where they could go, uh, particularly those that are that are less profitable. A lot of the excess has been wrung out of the bigger names, though. And so if you look at some of the largest tech names and the outperformance that they had had going into 2022, a lot of that outperformance has been given back. And so we think the larger names are, are pretty close to, to bottoming out here. Um, of course, one can never say never, and it's hard to predict day to day, but they're getting to be pretty attractively valued. Um, but some of the smaller and less profitable companies, it could be a while. So let's talk about big tech earnings. We've seen a number of companies miss their marks this quarter. Do you see that happening again in the current quarter and the next quarter? A lot of that is going to depend on what happens with underlying economic growth. And right now, it does come back to the consumer and corporate strengths. The consumer remains strong. We still have that $2.5 trillion of excess savings on the consumer balance sheets. Uh, consumers have pretty good wage growth, and they all have jobs. For the most part, we saw the unemployment come in last week at a very low 3.6. So as long as the consumer keeps spending, and therefore the economy keeps going, then we think that the company's top lines will be okay. I think the biggest question is whether or not that slows down materially from here. And then the second question is whether or not wage pressures are going to catch up and cause big tech to have to pay more to their workers. If we see inflation take hold in wages, not just in tech workers, but across the board, then that can really slow the economy down and keep inflation high and cause the Fed to move even faster and harder than they were before. Uh, but if the Fed is able to engineer a soft landing, then we think the large cap tech companies are going to remain more or less okay. But it does depend on the degree of pull forward that has been seen, and that's very much a company by company evaluation. Now, there's certainly a lot of factors that are just out of their control, including China's COVID policy, you know, continuing to keep Shanghai on lockdown. We know the Tesla factory, for example, has experienced a lot of disruptions. We know Apple uh, ha has some big warnings about supply constraints and the impact it'll have on their quarter to the tune of billions of dollars. How much of an impact do you think China's COVID policy specifically is having on this broader slowdown? It's clearly a factor, and particularly on the hardware side, as you point out, because so much hardware, including semis, but other, um, other assemblies, take place in China. And so the zero COVID policy is definitely having an effect. I think the question becomes not what effect is it having today, but what effect is it going to have in one or two more quarters? And does the government have the uh, wherewithal and the plan to continue with this type of um, very, very sharp lockdown for an indefinite period of time. 
if they ease up on it, either because the case numbers get better or it becomes untenable, then we can see a lot of those uh, tech products begin to flow again. So a lot of it's going to depend on the, on the policy itself. Uh, but if the case numbers get better and or the COVID, zero COVID policy is effective at keeping it um, con contained in certain areas, uh, I do think there will be a relief rally as we see a lot of the exports begin to come back online. Well, and of course, uh, we need to see how committed China is to that zero COVID policy. Look, what's your advice for tech investors right now? Are there any safe havens? Where should they be putting their money? Have a shopping list and come up with the names that you want. For us, that's the large cap tech companies with big moats like Microsoft, like Google, like Apple. Stay away from companies whose competitive moats are being eroded either by regulatory scrutiny or by consumer preferences or uh, COVID and stay at home ending. And find companies that are actually generating cash flow now. I do not think that the very low cash flow or negative cash flow companies are likely to come back. And I think that could re really um, be a losing trade going forward to try to buy some of those, even though they're down 60, 70, 80 plus percent. It's probably not a good idea to chase those because unless the Fed comes back with very easy money, I don't think you're, we're going to see those valuations again. All right. Have a shopping list. Advice from Ellen Hazen, Chief Market Strategist at FL Putnam. Thank you, Ellen, for joining us. Coming up, Elon Musk says he'll reverse the permanent ban of former President Trump if his deal to buy Twitter goes through. My Musk is still casting doubt on his ability to buy the platform. Next, this is Bloomberg. I would reverse the permanent ban. I'll say I'm not, I don't own Twitter yet, so this is not like a thing that will definitely happen because what if I don't own Twitter? What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. He has publicly stated that he will not be coming back to Twitter um, and that he will only be on Truth Social. And this is the, the point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that, there, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice.
It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. Elon Musk there speaking at the Financial Times Future of the Car Summit. His thoughts on the permanent ban of former President Trump on Twitter following the deadly attack at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Musk saying he'll reverse the ban if his $44 billion bid to buy Twitter goes through. For more, I'm joined by R. Ed Ledlow, who helps cover Musk for us, as well as Bloomberg Sarah Fryer, who covers big tech. So, Ed, not only did he say he'd reverse the ban on former President Trump, he repeatedly said if, if the deal goes through, casting some doubt on it going through at all. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, he, he was couching or caveating that the deal's not yet closed, but he did reference it, the idea that it might not go through. You know, investors have speculated that he could walk away potentially, uh, you know, that there would be some kind of challenge, as there has been. A pension funders sued Musk to block it. The FTC, according to sources, is investigating it. But ultimately, it wasn't just about the ban or reversing the ban for Trump. He basically said banning doesn't work. And he cited Trump setting up truth social, his own social media platform, where his voice is essentially enhanced. It's a very right-leaning platform. And he, he kind of used that as the basis of his argument that an outright ban, full stop, just doesn't work on the Twitter platform. Musk confirming what he had hinted at before, saying that we should be cautious, Twitter should be cautious about permanent bans. That said, Sarah, he has said he'd be okay censoring some content and potentially banning some individuals. So aside from the case of President Trump, what exactly would be different when it comes to content moderation under Elon Musk? Well, you know, it's, it's unclear because he, he says he's a free speech absolutist. And then when it comes down to it, when you sort of drill into the details in these conversations he's been having, he's totally open with some content moderation. He says he wants to get rid of the spam bots. He wants to get rid of the, the Bitcoin spams uh, that's happening on Twitter right now. There are some kinds of content that he's OK with, with getting rid of. And he was speaking with the European Union commissioner yesterday um, about this very uh, this very problem, and we expected there to be a lot of clashing there because the EU wants to have really strict content policy. Elon Musk said, hey, we have no disagreement here. I'm totally on board with all the things that you're saying, um, which was very surprising to me. So it's unclear when he comes in what will be different besides perhaps a little bit more friendliness with the right. Ed, explain Musk's line of argument that by removing Trump from Twitter, you amplify yeah. his voice elsewhere. Yeah, you know, it's, it is a bit of a head scratcher, but essentially he put it in very simple terms that it was foolish for, to remove Trump from the platform. He used a range of words. Trump set up his own social media platform, Truth Social. Truth Social does not have the potential at least to have as broad a debate and conversation as Twitter does in Musk's opinion. It is very right-leaning. It amplifies Trump's voice with that section of American society and American politics, not stifles it. And he did display some frustration, right, because the moderator of that FT conference said, okay, what's your position on reversing Trump's ban? Would you do it? Would you not do it? His point is, it, it's, it's academic to a certain point that had we never done that, he may never have set up Truth Social and that there would be a more moderated or at least bipartisan conversation on what Musk describes as the public town square, right? That's what he wants Twitter to be. Now, Musk also goes so far as to invoke Jack Dorsey's support, saying Jack Dorsey also supports this ban, uh, this unbanning of President Trump. Take a listen to what he had to say. My opinion, and Jack Dorsey, I want to be clear, shares this opinion, 
uh, is that we should not have perma, perma bans. Um, now, now I, that doesn't mean that somebody gets to say whatever they want to say. If they say something that is um, illegal or um, otherwise, you know, uh, just you know, just destructive to the world, then then that then there should be perhaps a timeout, uh, a temporary suspension, or, or that particular tweet uh, should be. Uh, uh, made invisible or, or have very limited uh, traction. Now, to be clear, former President Trump was banned from Twitter under Jack Dorsey's leadership. He responded to a tweet to that effect, uh, saying that he does agree there shouldn't be permanent bans. There are exceptions, but generally permanent bans are a failure of ours and don't work. Sarah, what do you make of Elon Musk invoking Jack Dorsey here? Um, and if Elon Musk is going to take over Twitter, is, is Jack Dorsey also going to be in the driver's seat or, or the co-pilot? Well, we know that they're friends. They have a friendship that goes way back. What's strange, though, about what Jack Dorsey has been saying is uh, who was the CEO of Twitter when Trump was banned? Who was the CEO of Twitter when they were making all these policies about who they needed to to moderate on the platform? It was Jack. And, and he's he's made some strange comments like this lately, where he, he talks about how Twitter's board has always been the dysfunction of Twitter, the fact that it's a public company and beholden to the markets. These are all big problems. Um, he was running the thing. So he could have changed a lot of these things while he was in charge. Um, um, I would love to hear more from Jack about why he feels like that was impossible. But I, I do think that um, he feels, if Twitter is a private company, that they might have more latitude to make certain changes that he didn't feel comfortable making as a, a public business. And Elon Musk could make that happen through his deal. Now, Elon Musk has said he would be Twitter CEO, at least for a time, after this takeover. But is it you know, at all possible that Jack Dorsey comes back as, as CEO as well? Sure, I, I think that's definitely possible and it's, it's one of the top names that have been speculated. You know, Elon Musk, running it for a few months um, is maybe something to say to try to uh, get investors on board with the plan. He has a bit of a, a Midas touch when it comes to the things that he says are going to work out. Uh, he certainly has some lofty plans that he's put forth for Twitter, um, but he has this cult of personality that when he takes charge of something, people really do listen and come on board. Maybe he could convince Jack to come back to run Twitter, or, or maybe he has somebody else in mind. Ed, what do you make of that thought, given how Elon Musk runs his other companies. Yeah, look, he's not afraid to do talent sharing. You look about the, the sort of software AI talent sharing, material talent sharing that goes on between Tesla and SpaceX. He's tweeted and commented a lot that Tesla is principally a software company. He's talked about needing to fix at Twitter the underlying technology, right? Open sourcing the algorithm. Also, he talks about Twitter's hardware, needing to basically fix their computers to make the, the process better. Beyond that, his suggestions are straightforward, right? Sarah's just talked about them, strip out the bots. Uh, he accused Twitter of being slightly left-leaning or liberal because it's based in San Francisco. And as Sarah alluded to, we've talked a little bit about True Social. Perhaps, you know, he feels that he wants to drag Twitter back into the center from a kind of content moderation policy standpoint. It's the only clue we have to go on. Um, but beyond that, you know, what today made clear is that he is not in favor of outright bans. A timeout, perhaps, 
making invisible tweets that, that are dangerous or, or breach a certain policy, perhaps, but not outright banned. All right. So much TBD. Ed Ludlow, Sarah Fryer, thank you. A rough ride for Peloton, the company tumbling to a record low after deeper-than-expected losses in its latest earnings report. Joined now by Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who covers Peloton for us. So just how quickly is this bike maker going downhill, Mark? Uh, as quickly as uh, you can probably ride a Peloton bike with uh, all your energy. <laughs> this company at this point is an unmitigated disaster. I really, quite frankly, don't even know why they went public in 2019, right? They went public just a few months before the pandemic started, right? And that really kicked off their sales. So all their success has really only been in this pandemic period. This is a company generating between $3 billion and $4 billion per year. This is not the companies like Apple that generate maybe 3 to $4 billion every week and a half, right? So I'm not sure what they see the, the point in, in being public and why they, they did that. Their numbers are disastrous. They've missed on their revenue numbers for Q3. Now, in addition to last quarter Q2, they're projecting to miss on estimates for next quarter as well as for fiscal 2022. They had to re-guide yet again. So things are not going so well for new CEO Barry McCarthy. He came into the job on February 9th, so just about three months ago, right? And at this point, the stock is down over 60% since he took over. Now, if you compare that to the S&P 500, I believe the Peloton stock is down four or five X the larger market. So clearly the problem is not only the market, but it's Peloton, investor belief, analyst belief, and in some cases, is customer belief as well. So I'm sure Peloton would argue with the fact that its only success came in the pandemic. You know, it did have a fairly strong brand name going into the pandemic, but now that we're out of it, what is Barry McCarthy's turnaround plan? You know, John Foley, the, the former CEO, sold this vision of the pandemic teaching more people about Peloton and these numbers being able to continue. They completely failed with their ability to project supply and demand going out of the pandemic. Barry McCarthy's turnaround plan is to hike the subscription fee. So it's going to go from 39 a month to 44 a month in the U.S. starting on June 1st. So in a bit, about three weeks from now. So we'll see the impact that has on subscription margins and subscription revenue. He's also cut the prices of the treadmill and their two major bikes, the regular bike and the bike plus from between $100 and $500, depending on which model you're getting. That's obviously going to lower margins and lower revenue on hardware. And they're hoping over the long term, combined with the leasing program, that they'll have more you know, continuous revenue right, coming from subscriptions and coming from people signing up on these monthly plans and maybe annual plans in the future. So there is a plan in place. But on the first three months of the job, it hasn't yet you know, resulted in you know, positive momentum. All right, we'll see how Peloton tries to retake control. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Well, the recent tech sell-off is leading to massive valuation haircuts in public and private markets with funding harder to raise. In uncertain times, how do founders keep building? Tony Fidel, one of the key players behind the iPod and the iPhone at Apple, and of course the co-founder of Nest, is out with a new book, Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. He joins us now with some advice for entrepreneurs today. Tony, it's always great to have you back here on the show hey, and always appreciate hearing your unorthodox advice. In times <laughs> like this, just what advice would you give entrepreneurs? 
batten down the hatches? Well, first, hopefully you didn't go into some craziness and overextend yourself. So the first thing was, I hope you didn't take a valuation you shouldn't have just because it looked great on paper. You know, it was too high. But if you did, you're going to have to write the ship. And the biggest thing is the uh, is reminding your team that those numbers were all fabricated, those were all made up kind of things, and go back to the business of working on your mission and, and achieving that. And also trimming the sales. So you have to go back and to first principles and stop you know, thinking about this overinflated market it has changed. It has changed dramatically. It will, it will levelize again. We're going to swing and the pendulum swinging one way, swinging the other way. But again, stay focused on the work. Go make your mission happen. But don't worry about all the craziness around it. We're going to take care of you. The biggest thing is taking care of your team. So I'm sure we could talk about this next question for hours. But in a nutshell, what are some lessons you learned the hard way? Oh, geez. <laughs> Let me count. Um, I think the biggest one was understanding timing. You know, you, have, you can have great technology, you can have great things, understanding timing. You know, the market has to be ready or ready to listen to what the innovation you have. The second thing, I think, is really understanding how you're telling your story. And you have to tell a story of why, why, why. That's what's in the book, uh, Build. It's all about the why. Too many times tech founders and engineers and people in the, in the tech world worry about the what, what, what. It starts with the why. Why do customers need it? What pain are you solving? What do you need to do to get that message across and make sure then your product delivers on that? Stop worrying about the bits and bytes. Start working on the story and making sure that story is a painkiller, not a vitamin. Now, Google bought one of the things you built and that was Nest. It didn't necessarily go as planned. What's your take <laughs> on what went wrong, let's say there? Well, it's in, it in the book, but I, I'll, how can we put it this way? We spent six months trying to figure out the right way to work together and if this marriage, what I called was a marriage, was going to work out. And so it was working okay for the first kind of two, three quarters. And then it was like the Tindler swindler. Uh, what we were sold, this bill of goods we were sold in this marriage, all of a sudden turned to be blown up. And it really boiled down to... Um, I thought that a something they would purchase for 3.2 billion would be something they would take in and cherish and be and understand that they have to nurture it and and take care of it. They were making so much money and they continue to make so much money. They went on to other and different things, and we were just yet another toy that was a, a, a you know a period of time. So for us, what we thought was going to be a great marriage turned out to be like a, a fling for them. And for us, we were kind of left hanging at the, you know, left hanging while they went and did other things. So it was really about focus and about leadership. Um, and, and, and that's what I think happened at the end of the day of why it didn't work out. Okay, speaking of another unorthodox marriage, that, that could happen between Elon Musk and Twitter. He's proposed, he said a few times sure. today, you know, it might not go through. But what do you make of that deal? Well, look, Elon's an innovator and he's a, a brash one at that. You have to give him credit for what he's manifested in this world and how he's shamed the auto industry to move and all these other things. I think, you know, we look at back in the days of the oil barons and what have you, and they bought media. 
right? They bought media to control the share, the story, shape the message um, of what they were doing. I think you know that there's some echoes of that in 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 Elon per, or trying to purchase Twitter. But I also think that there are things that Twitter needs to solve and haven't solved for many years um, in terms of the algorithms, how they they work, um, some of some of the 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 innovations in terms of editing tweets, deleting tweets, uh, content moderation. That said, you know, you could go all the way the other way where there's no controls, where you remove everything and it becomes something that is reminiscent of a 4chan or an 8chan or whatever the latest toxic social media network or broadcast one to many platform is. So I hope that Elon is able to actually look at this and say, I'm going to divorce the world of the algorithm and revenue from the tweet stream and amplifying messages that could have misinformation, ugly information, uh, things that cause genocide and all those other things. We need to separate the capital and the revenue from the messages that are amplified by the algorithm. If they are tied like they have been, that's when we have the toxicity that that happens. Because if it bleeds, it leads, as you know. And and I hope Elon is going to be the doing the right thing. Even if he brings t- Trump back on, Trump shouldn't be amplified for re- revenue gains. So let's talk about that for a moment. I want you to take a listen to what Elon had to say about the banning of President Trump today. Take a listen. Sure. I would reverse the perma-ban. I will say I'm not, I don't own Twitter yet, so this is not like a thing that will definitely happen, because what if I don't own Twitter? Is bringing Trump back on Twitter the right call? It depends on the algorithms. It depends on the other, it depends on the environment that he's brought back in. So to me, if he can amplify and he can continue the misinformation and that he has been doing, uh, and, and then and that is for revenue purposes, then it is wrong. Everyone can have freedom of speech, but it has to come with consequences. And it cannot be tied to revenue that says the more, the more toxic it is or the more uh, you know, entertainment value it is, you make more revenue. If that's the case, then he should not be allowed back onto the platform. It, everyone should have a level playing field, and it shouldn't be tied to your revenue dollars that, you know, that is going to be seen by the company itself. Now, Apple, today, just in time for you to join us, discontinued its last iPod model. And obviously, the iPod led to two decades of, of, of innovation at Apple, led to the iPhone. But how do you reflect on kind of the end of an era for the iPod and the thing that you are the father of. <laughs> well, look, um, at the end of the day, technology marches on, okay? The beat never stops. You know, you could, I, I remember I lamented the day when the Apple II was dead, but the Apple II died in the 90s, well past the date when, you know, the Mac took over and, and in the later 80s. Um, then again, you know, when we look at it, the iPod was already starting to be cannibalized or dying around the time of the iPhone, right? It was always understood that some point at some sometime that the cannibalization of the iPod would be complete. I can't believe that the iPod has lasted this long, actually, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's in the end of an era, but it is a cornerstone. It's an indelible piece of Apple history, of technology in general history, just like the Apple II was, the Mac is. And those things are going to live on well beyond, and they 
if it wasn't for the iPod, we wouldn't have the iPhone. So all of these things are stepping stones. That's how technology works. So I can, you know, I can, I can think fondly of those days and those incredible times. And the Apple that we know today would not have existed without that development and that, that crazy time, that fun time that was iPod. So how would you rate the innovation and building that's happening at Apple today? Again, in a nutshell, especially how they're managing or navigating these supply chain issues. Well, you know, the supply chain, let's put cast that aside. But if you look at innovation in general, uh, and I think they're doing a great job in the supply chain, given what we're hearing from other companies and those kinds of things. So I think, you know, look at the quarterly results that just came out. So I think managing supply chain, given the macro environment, is really difficult. And they're doing a good job trying to thread that needle. But when you look at innovation at Apple today, innovation at Apple today is very strong. It's not the same kind of innovation that the consumer thinks of innovation, whether it was the iPod or iPhone or AirPods or what have you. When you look at the innovation, it's happening all at the, the lowest levels. The sensors, face ID, touch ID. We have things like um, uh, uh, the M1 processor. That has been an innovation that was born out of the 2008 time frame when I was there and Bob Mansfield and I bought PA Semi and created the, you know, the, 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 the Mac Silicon uh, for, or excuse me, the Apple Silicon for the iPhone. It now is now the Mac Silicon. It took a long time to get there. But those kinds of innovations are cement Apple into the future for more and more, um, for more and more transformation, more and more innovation. So we're seeing the, the hints of that. It's happening at the lowest levels, but it will come okay. out in other products over time. Tony Fidel. Future Shape now, your uh, investment arm. Tony, always great to have you here on the show and to hear your thoughts on the broader tech landscape. Thanks for joining us and, yeah, buy the book, build. Coming up, stable coins used to be the safe bet in crypto, but is the honeymoon over? We'll have more on that next. This is Bloomberg. Stable coins are, serve a huge purpose in the crypto and the DeFi economy, and they're here to stay. And I think it'll also help out, um, you know, all activity on the on various chains. So I hope the regulators recognize that as well. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
It is time now for our crypto report, and let's start with what came out of Coinbase's latest results. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik, here with more. Shanali, take it away. Emily, thank you so much. We have Coinbase. It's down almost 14% aftermarket after reporting earnings that have missed analyst estimates on Wall Street. You have them falling short on monthly transacting users, falling by about $2 million from the prior quarter, even though it's higher than a year ago. First quarter revenue also below analyst estimates. Remember, this is already for a stock that is down more than 70% this year, more than 75% if you look at the last 12 months. There was an expectation that growth would slow, and they say, Coinbase that is, that growth would slow into this current quarter, the second quarter of this year as well. You have Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong addressing analysts at this moment, saying they will eventually be profitable, but they are guiding that they will still be unprofitable for this year. The question is, will investors be patient with them as they make it through a very volatile time in Bitcoin as they seek to diversify away from just trading revenues into new products like that NFT marketplace and start to work with more banks and institutions, Emily. All right, Shanali, thank you. I want to turn now to algorithmic stable coins. This came up recently uh, in a discussion with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. They're more traditional counterparts, dollar-backed stable coins as well, supposed to provide calm in the chaos of crypto, but the algorithmic stable coin called Terra USD plunged to 60 cents Monday instead of trading at a dollar as designed. It's now back at around 90 cents, but is this a sign of trouble for stable coins more broadly? I want to bring in Falcon X's head of institutional coverage, Aya Kantorovich, for her take on all this. Let's zoom in here on Terra, Aya. What do you think this activity means? So I think there's a couple things at play here. The first is, uh, you know, this is there is a difference between an algorithmic stablecoin versus a stablecoin that's backed one to one with the U.S. dollar. And so, if you look at the comparison between USDC and USDT Tether, uh, UST is a blend of both Luna and UST, which is minted and burned in order to maintain that one to one peg. What happened this weekend is we saw a large motivated seller go into the market and depress that USD price and depeg the algorithmic stablecoin, causing uh, an initial drop down to, it was roughly 0.8. Uh, cents on the dollar. And really, why is that concerning? It's really concerning because the Luna Foundation Guard, which manages all of these applications on top, also manages a yield pool called Anchor. Uh, And Anchor has been uh, generating over 20% yields, now 18% yield for a number of personas, anywhere between retail to institutional. Uh, And so what happens is you had uh, roughly 17 billion of total value locked in anchor now drop uh, significantly due to that de-pegging because people were getting liquidated uh, once that peg was no longer one-to-one. And you saw the Luna Foundation have to engage in order to re-peg that stablecoin. And as you mentioned, uh, yesterday saw that peg drop all the way down to 60 cents on the dollar. Meantime, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen brought up Tara recently and talked about stablecoins more broadly as a risk to financial stability. Take a listen to what Yellen had to say. Terra USD um, experienced a run and had declined in value. And um, well, so it, I, I think that simply illustrates that this is a rapidly growing uh, product and um, that there, there are risks to financial stability and we need a framework that's, that's appropriate. Aya, what's your response to that? 
we need a framework to far more than uh, just stable coins in crypto. Uh, and I would say, you know, this strengthens the approach towards stable coins like USDC, uh, which is now 40 billion in market cap, uh, as well as USDT, which is 80 billion in market cap. You've also seen other algorithmic stable coins like Frax. Uh, gain in traction. I think the largest question here is really uh, whether or not it's algorithmic or it's one-to-one -one peg, uh, and whether or not investors, uh, you know, they have faith in the algorithmic stablecoin. But again, going back to Anchor, if you look at where that 17 billion now sits, uh, earlier today it was less than seven billion dollars left in Anchor, still decreasing, really reflecting that I don't think the retail and institutional investors have much faith that that peg can maintain algorithmically in a decentralized fashion. You know, there's a question here, and you do see UST dropping once again, removing that peg even further at 79 cents according to Coinbase prices. So you still see that volatility into today, even when you see Bitcoin recovering a little bit. So I am wondering here, what broader ramification is there, especially for DeFi, as the, as the market starts to move forward here? I think the difference is really, if you take, for example, Maker and Die, you had a number of these potential runs happen historically, but the market has corrected and shown uh, resilience through those market volatility terms. Uh, overall, crypto itself, as you mentioned, Bitcoin, ETH, we've stayed relatively range-bound last week and will likely continue to be range-bound had it not been uh, this anchor run uh, for the money. And so what we'll likely see is we'll likely see that capital go into other forms of yield generating assets. I think right now what we're hearing across the desk is all institutional clients want some level of yield. And flat is the new up. And so if you can maintain a flat return uh, relative to what's happening in public markets and crypto, that is what your LPs are looking for. And so they'll find it either in swaps, derivatives, and structured products, and, and that's really where we're focused. All right, Falcon X's head of institutional coverage, Aya Kantorovich, along with Bloomberg Shanali Bostic. Thank you. Now to a quick update on Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. Apollo plans to lead a billion dollars in financing for that bid. This adds to the long list of unusual investors that Musk has secured for his deal to buy Twitter, ranging from Larry Ellison to Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz to the crypto firm Binance, a Saudi prince, and more. It is time now for this week's Techonomics segment, and our spotlight is on solar panel energy. Rooftop solar is a surging sector, but only 4% of homes feature solar panels. However, investors from LeBron James to Arnold Schwarzenegger believe Palmetto can turn that around. I want to bring in Palmetto founder and CEO Chris Kemper. Chris, thank you. So how have you gotten folks like Drake and Bono and Arnold Schwarzenegger on board? Yeah, well, thanks, Emily. I appreciate you having me. Um, I think that these types of investors see what we've seen and been working on since 2009, which is, you know, climate change and energy independence is a is a big problem um, for Palmetto. You know, unlike peers in our space, we're primarily uh, those firms are primarily focused on construction. We're focused on an end to end tech platform uh, solving for solar delivery. And we can lay that out in three simple steps for you. Uh, so one is whether it's an individual entrepreneur or a Fortune 500 company, uh, we provide them with the tools to enable to sell to the consumers. Two, uh, we then provide a seamless, delighted uh, experience to the consumers, which helps build our brand experience. And then thirdly, uh, we provide full supply chain management, financing, quality control, 
uh, to our build partners to actually install the physical project in the market, and net net that delivers about a 75 net promoter score. So okay. We, mm-hmm. Now, you and Chamath Palihapitiya have pitched a $3 trillion investment by the U.S. government to fund solar for the entire country. How exactly would this work, and have you gotten any feedback from the White House? We haven't gotten feedback from the White House uh, to address that point directly. Uh, we do believe that ultimately, if you kind of look at benefits um, you know, out there uh, that have passed perhaps through PPP or other things, the, the only point trying to be made here is what would that quantum of capital uh, how would that actually impact uh, climate change mitigation and energy independence if we were able to allocate that capital to, by example, renewables, specifically solar? So otherwise, how do you scale rooftop solar? Without $3 trillion from the government, how are we going to get there? Or is that the only way? We get there simply through uh, three three main things, best product, best price, and, a, and uh, a great service to the customer. So back to our model, we specifically focus on distribution channels, provide them with the tools to acquire consumers. We automate the end-to-end delivery of solar uh, to the customer's home and then turnkey it and then service it. The goal is is that you have such a great experience and you're saving monthly uh, saving money on a monthly basis that then you want to tell your friends and then drive the basically the flywheel effect from there. Uh, and we've been doing this for about 14 years now. So uh, we're starting to see the momentum and the price drop that can grow total TAM. Mm-hmm. All right. Paul Meadow, CEO, Chris Kemper, we'll keep our eye on you and your investors, of course. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by Rick Osterloh, Alphabet Senior Vice President of Hardware. This is around Google I.O. And Patrick Spence, CEO of Sonos. We're also watching earnings from Disney and a big announcement coming from Airbnb. Don't forget to check out our new podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.